Start over here. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So coming into this section we have here, um, Paul is working to answer a very, very crucial question. Uh, we came out of Romans 8. We have great promises to the believer in Romans 8. The new life, the uh, promise of no condemnation, the, give, the giving of the Spirit. Um, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the great question that Paul has to answer is, if, if those promises are going to be guaranteed to the believer then we need to be assured that God is faithful. But if God made a lot of promises to the Old Testament Jew and to the Old Testament nation of Israel, what do we do with the reality in the beginning of Romans 9? Most of the Jews have rejected Jesus. Right? Most of them have fallen away from the promises that God made in the Old Testament. And so if God made his promises to those people and they fell away in large part, how can we trust God with the promises he gives to us now? All right, and that's the question in the beginning of verse 6 that he's starting to answer. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Because the, the problem is it looks like the word of God to the Old Testament nation of Israel failed. If you look at... Uh, one of the promises in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, it says that for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And when you get into the New Testament, you see the Jews rejecting Christ, killing the Messiah. And so the faithfulness of God is at stake. And so that is what Paul has to address. If God is to be our faithful God today, he has to be demonstrated to be the faithful God of Israel, right? And so Paul starts to defend the faithfulness of God. He starts to prove that God is still trustworthy. And so we get the first of two examples, starting in verse 7 and going through verse 9. And this is what Pat covered last week. This is the first foundational case. Um, and Paul is going to use these foundational cases to show that, that God's promises of salvation, right, his promises to be with his people, to create a people, these promises have never been based on genealogy. They've never been based on nationality or even the covenant blessing that was given in general to the nation. Um, and, and we see the covenant blessing did impact the entire nation of Israel to some extent. right? But these specific salvific promises of God never impacted the entire nation, right? But instead, even from the beginning, they were meant for a specific subset of people within that nation of Israel. And so Paul is going to start to prove that um, because the Jewish, Jewish assumption was that you just needed to be a physical descendant of Abraham and unless you apostatized, you were all set, right? You were in the covenant, you were blessed, you were part of the people of God, you were, uh, in our terms, saved. Um, so Paul starts with the first example, his first proof case, and it's Isaac and Ishmael, right? Children of Abraham, both natural 
descendants of Abraham. And one of them was not in the covenant. Right, so this is very foundationally Paul starting to prove his case that the blessing of God unto salvation was never intended for the entire natural descend, descendants of Israel, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see that in verses 7 through 9, right? Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So we clearly have a child of natural means, Ishmael, and then we have a child of promise, and that is Isaac. And it's not just promise as in God promised a child, but God gave the promised descendant, the child that was going to receive the blessing to Abraham and Sarah. Um, and this is God acting outside of human planning to bestow his covenant blessing outside of human desire, human effort. Because right, we very clearly in that Old Testament story see Abraham and Sarah um, trying to figure out a way to help God's promises along right, because they don't have a child. Um, and God says, no, I made a promise. I will work through my promise and the child that I give you will be the child of promise. And so that is where the true offspring is starting to be defined. All right, the true offspring are a result of God's initiative and God's promise. They're not just because Abraham and Sarah had a child. All right? So, Paul is starting to show, through that example, that God's intent from the beginning was never to bring every descendant of Abraham into covenant blessing with himself. All right? The, the, the covenant blessing that, that ended in their their ultimate salvation. And then he moves on to proof case number two. Um, so we learn from the first one that God is free to bestow the promise as he sees fit. Right? Isaac, not Ishmael. God is not enslaved to our human efforts. Right? He acts independently of our best attempts to help him. And, and from the start, God has not acted to save all of physical Israel. Right, so now we move on to the second case, and this is the very famous case of Jacob and Esau, right? the twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. And so now Paul is starting to address why does God act, and on what basis does he act in bestowing blessing on some and not others. So let's talk about the basis of God's actions first. This is in verse verses 10 to 13. We'll just read those again. It says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what is the basis of God's act, his his choice. And what Paul does is he he doesn't speak necessarily to why God did, but why God why not? Right? He eliminates all of the reasons that we think God would have selected Jacob and not Esau. And so he starts off with the the similarity of these two. Right? They were both conceived at the same time. Right, the, the, one is not first, the other second. One is not born 13 years before the other, like Isaac and Ishmael. They were both conceived by one man at the same time. Right, So the, their origin is exactly the same. The covenant head, right, Isaac, the one who received the covenant blessing from Abraham, is their father. Right, so they have equal rights, as it were, to that covenant blessing being passed on to them at the moment of conception, right? <clears throat> Next thing that Paul eliminates as a reason is their actions. Right? This, this, this work of God, this bestowal of blessing, is done before either of them had done a single thing good or a single thing bad. Right? They had not even been born yet. Once children are born, they, they can start to act, even in small ways, and in months, you start to see good and evil in them. 
right? You, you most noticeably see the the denial of, of parental authority, the rejection, the fight, the desire to do their own thing. But this was done before they were even born. So before they had the natural capacity or religious devotion, before they had even faith, right? God acted. So we're eliminating anything in these boys that could have affected God's decision. Interestingly, Isaac and Rebekah didn't know this, but Jacob was going to be the younger. And God, in his promise, says the older will serve the younger. So even before they knew who the firstborn was going to be, and that would have given preference to Esau, right? The firstborn would have been the first thing that differentiated these two boys. Right, which one came out first? Okay, that one is going to get the first chance of the covenant blessing. So they don't even know who the firstborn is going to be, but God, even in that, demonstrates that our assumptions about value, our assumptions about who should be first and second, are not a factor in what he is doing. Right? God knew who was going to be born first. He could have given preference based on that, and he didn't. Right? He simply did it without any regard for what these boys were going to do, what these boys were. He, there was no basis in Jacob or Esau for God's choice. Right? Jacob could not say, I did something, I was born first, I was a, a, a kinder person. He had no reason to say that he had earned something from God. Right? Yes, sir? What role do you think that God made to Rebecca had in her deceiving Jacob a little bit down the road. Oh, yeah. I mean, deceiving oh, yeah. uh, Isaac, the whole Jacob. I mean, it, in a way, she kind of took things into her. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't say in the text. Right. But I just wonder, in my mind, if at some point she said, I know that the oldest is going to serve the youngest, so I'm going to mm -hmm. steal the blessing. Yeah. And she favored him, and yeah. she knew Isaac favored Esau. Yeah. I mean, to, to look through the scriptures at how God works with and interacts with our sinfulness and our attempts to help or do things on her own is, is incredible because as much as it was wrong for her to do that isn't that also what god used mm -hmm. right to bestow the blessing on jacob um i don't want you to go on too much of a sidebar or mm -hmm. maybe this is something that's coming but this is sort of like this piece of scripture right it's kind of the where where those who would say you know election you know tulip calvinism that side yeah and, and the other side being the I have decided to mm -hmm. follow Jesus side. Yeah. Um, how you know how would that camp kind of reconcile these scriptures? Yeah. Or is that like too big of a question for right now? No, and, and some others could give answer if if I if you know more than I do. The the most common thing I've heard is that it's a a corporate election um, that we're looking at here instead of an individual. You know, specific choosing. Um, I've certainly heard that. Um, you also get the idea that God saw faithfulness in Jacob in the future and therefore chose him. Um, I don't know if anybody has other interpretations they've heard. There's a certain way in which that I have decided to follow Jesus thing is legitimate if God frees you up to make a decision to right. follow him. Yeah. I mean, God doesn't make a decision for us. Mm -hmm. We're not yeah. just programmed machine yeah and we'll, so we'll get to that a little bit we yeah. certainly can sing that i wouldn't suggest we sing it corporately because i'm not into corporate songs with lots of personal pronouns but, <laughs> but there is that sort of where we do make a legitimate decision at some yeah. point because we're freed up by god to make that decision you know? amen. amen if that helps at all barry yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say the question is always like mike was saying that how do you how do you jive the free will with the right sure. the election so yep Yeah, um, it's interesting, throughout this passage, Paul doesn't attempt to reconcile human responsibility and no. God's freedom in election to act. Mm -hmm. um, and and we should not attempt to do what Scripture does not attempt to do. Right? 
And, and I think that especially makes sense in light of um, the purpose of this passage, which you articulated in the beginning, um, mm-hmm. is him answering the, the crucial question that if the promises are being guaranteed to the believer, mm-hmm. then you know how can we know if God's faithful in light of you know what happened to the Jews? And so being in that conversation, the question of how human responsibility and God's election intertwine isn't as relevant as just seeing how God's election works. Yeah, yeah, amen. Um, and and th- this is a passage that is extremely clear about God's freedom to act in election. Um, it is, yeah, there, there's... There's attempts to tweak this passage, um, and I think you really do injustice to the passage when you when you try to do that. Um, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Paul Paul knows the reaction of people, right? And he does nothing to help us feel better about our quote unquote free will. Uh, <laughs> he knows how people are going to, in their pride, react to this, and he comes back at them and says, "Why do you react that way? Don't you know who God is?" Um, it's 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 a good passage. There's a professor from Dallas, uh, Dr. William Flowers, and he he explains it in the sense that um, Paul is talking to the Jewish nation here, and he's saying basically, if God wants to include the Gentiles in His plan of salvation, what is that to you? Mm-hmm. And he's, it, it's still he's not talking about the controversy over free will and, and God's sovereignty. Yeah. 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 And we'll come to that when we get to the hardening of Pharaoh. Um, Tom Schreiner, one of the commentators I read on this passage, he says that, and this this comes later, but he says this verse excludes in the clearest possible terms the notion that free will is the fundamental factor in divine election. I mean, just just wipes it out. Um, and Paul really does do that. Um, so, why did God do this? Why did God say to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger? Paul says in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. God did this to continue his already started and future purpose of election. God is showing that he is going to create a people by sovereignly, freely electing them out from sinful humanity. Mm-hmm. Right? That is why God did this with Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a hard and really, really good, wonderful truth. This is talking about the, the predetermined plan that God is using to create his people. Right? And this is God's intended method of bestowing promises. This is how God intends to work. It started with Abraham. We saw Isaac as the child of promise. And it's going to continue through to Jacob. And therefore, right, because Paul is using this as a foundational example to teach why only some Israelites were saved. Therefore, this continues through the Old Testament as well. Could there be um, possibly another reason? Um, this might be a little bit more globally in that sometimes God... Um, puts in scripture things that are somewhat hidden Um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes he makes things that are extremely plain and in this case these these things that are written in this kind of area right here a lot a lot of it is very plain Mm -hmm. and obvious Mm -hmm. and yet still won't believe and so god knows that this is true Mm -hmm. and it also backs up the fact that even intellectually if you know something you still won't believe it Mm -hmm. yeah because it it takes the, the work of God in the heart. Um, and, and Paul here contrasts two things in God's purpose of election. He says it's not because of works. And we might we might think that works here is going to be contrasted with faith. We see that in James, right? But it's, it's contrasted rather with him who calls. right? So this is not done based on works, but it's rather done based on him who calls. Right, so we are again divorcing the call from anything in the man or the woman. Right, God is here doing what he does of his own free decision. Um, so Paul doesn't even insert faith here. Right, 
So he doesn't say, not because of works, but because of him who had faith. He says, no, it's because of the one who calls, and that is God himself. God is given here as the decisive actor. Um, so Jacob was not chosen for his good works, and Esau was not rejected for his bad works. Right? This was God's free act. So combining these two things, these two reasons that Paul is giving, in no way do God's people deserve or earn God's gracious and merciful election. Rather, he bestows it as he freely chooses. And we, in the middle of, of difficult or just um, doctrine that really hits at our pride, we need to always remember to stop, pause, and rejoice. Praise the Lord, worship him, because if if God's plan depended on our our efforts, our, our goodness, our, our maintaining of faith, right, um, then God's word would have fallen to the ground long ago, right? It would have fallen to the ground the, the moment Adam and Eve fell. And we're, we're not capable of, of accomplishing God's purpose in history, right? We are not focused enough. We're not good enough. We're not, our hearts aren't pure enough. It's just not possible, right? You, you see this daily in your own life. If God relied on us, you know, we are lost, <laughs> you know, that alone, that, that very, very clear, yeah. uh, decisive, unbridgeable gap yeah. uh, makes, makes all the difference. And we, that's why we come to Scripture. Yeah. Amen. He is, and we're not. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about all the times that we stumble and God brings us back. Right? Why does He do that? Right? Because His purpose, His free choice has called us, and He's not going to change that. He's not going to let us go. Right? His name is at stake. His faithfulness is at stake. Right? And Paul is arguing for that. He's saying God has not lost any of Israel. Right? And that is a place to worship. Um, because when you read the Old Testament, all, all of Israel should have been lost. Right? Think of the great examples of faithfulness in Israel. Abraham. Uh, the deceiver Jacob. Right? David. I mean, we're not looking at, you know, pillars of purity here, right? Yeah, and um, <coughs> just to sort of reinforce the legitimacy of all of this, um, I myself am a twin. Um, mm. from, <laughs> from a young age, um, there was no difference in how me or my brother were treated. Mm. You know, he didn't receive opportunities that I didn't, or I didn't receive love that he didn't. Yeah. Um, especially the early sections of our life. Um, and currently, I'm a, a believer here in this congregation, and my brother has no yeah. regard for God. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that to lift myself up, but rather to tell you guys that it's not based on anything from me. Yeah. That, that I know 100% that yeah. I'm not the difference between me and my brother, yeah. but God is. Yeah. I remember both of them coming to youth group back in the day. And, uh, yeah, after a while, Justin, by the grace of God, hung on, and his brother just stopped coming. It was, it was interesting. And so because of God's free act, verse 12, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this was done because of God's free act of election, as we have talked about. Uh, and so Paul here quotes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, to say that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Um, and, and we're not talking here about emotions that God is feeling, but we're rather talking about God loving and therefore choosing Jacob, right? placing his covenant blessing on Jacob, and then hating or not choosing Esau and, and rejecting him. Um, we, we do rightly understand from other passages that God loves the world. Um, God loves the whole world, and yet he withholds his love in election from many. Um, so we need to make that distinction, and that's, that's something that Paul is, is doing here. We're talking about the love of God in election for his people. 
Um, and so God set his foreknowledge, right, that, that intimate foreknowing love on Jacob and not on Esau. touch on the corporate versus the individual interpretation um, because there are certainly some commentators that will do this and say that this is not speaking of individual specific election because that, that's a hard uh, doctrine for a lot of people to accept um, and so they'll, they'll work this as God re- choosing the nation of Israel um, and rejecting Edom right Esau's nation um, and, and to some extent that was certainly true you know, the, we, we see national implications throughout the choosing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the nation of Israel. Certainly, they had the covenants, they had the promises, that the Messiah came through them. Um, and Edom was rejected. Um, and that is borne out throughout the Old Testament. Um, but, but if we look at the context of this, Paul is looking at a nation and then answering the question as to why so many individuals in that nation did not accept the Messiah, right? And he answers it by saying that God has specifically chosen some out of that nation. Um, So we can't just stay with the national interpretation because Paul doesn't, right? He goes into Isaac and Ishmael. He goes into Jacob and Esau. And he says that even now, God has done this very thing with the nation of Israel as a whole. And so those that have believed in the Messiah are following the pattern of Isaac, are following the pattern of Jacob, where God's election has come to them. So Paul goes to the individual level to answer the question. So we can't say that he's simply using these two as just a national example, because he's answering a national question with an individual answer. to yeah yeah and I, I think we would rightly understand that paul has already established that you know, this is romans 3 is the foundation for all of this you know there is no one who seeks god I and mean, that is foundational for this so you don't you don't have the case of someone genuinely in a in a holy desire running after god and god saying no right that is that is not a possible case based on how paul has built his argument um So we get into verse 14, and Paul starts to uh, 
take a bit of an excursus from his current argument to answer questions that are going to arise. All right, and and the, these questions still arise today. Um, and it's interesting, these, these questions arise because people rightly understand what Paul is saying in verses 6 through 13. Um, if Paul has so far left the door open for uh, us to freely, of our own volition, choose God, if Paul has left the door open to good works earning us a spot with God, um, these questions don't come up. Right? But if, if Paul has shut the door, these questions come up. Because if God decides, apart from anything, whom he will choose and whom he will reject, then how can he still be righteous? Or how can he blame people for rejecting him? And those are exactly the, Paul, the questions Paul answers. Next, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If you go down to verse 19, we're not covering this today, but... The next question he answers is, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right? And so the questions that Paul brings up reveal the argument he has already made. Right? Because you don't ask these questions unless you think that God has done something. Um, yeah, if you don't think God is elected, you don't ask these questions. Right? Because there seems to be a lack of fairness. So Paul is going to dive into these and answer them. Um, and what's interesting is he doesn't compromise God's absolute election in his answers. Instead, he reasserts it in stronger terms. Um, the strongest is in, in verse 20, when Paul doesn't even really answer the question. And somebody else will cover this next week. But, but Paul just says, who are you to answer back to God? That's tough. Doesn't it kind of shed a little light on the centurion when his response to Jesus about his servant, his desire for his servant to be healed, and he says, you're a man of authority just like me. Mm -hmm. He says, you tell people to do, and they do it. Yep. I do the same thing. Just say the word, heal my servant. Yep. And Jesus says, there's no faith in all of Israel. Mm -hmm. I, I still believe that Jesus would say to this day, within certain if you had a crowd of a hundred Christians, he would say, you have a greater faith than mm. the faith of that individual. Yeah. Only because of this, the, the issue we're talking about today, the doctrine we're talking about today, Christians still get upset about God being fair. Mm -hmm. yeah. As if he has to answer to us. And how, yeah. it's one of the reasons why I hate, I hate the whole idea of human rights. Only God mm. creates human rights. Mm -hmm. When we start articulating yeah. without God's opinion, yeah, yeah. The uh, the beauty of this doctrine, and we'll come to this later, and as we try to apply it, is that it lays us on our face before God, like just in complete humility, and and that is where you want to start all of your theology. Um, so Paul answers the first objection: Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers it quickly by saying, "By no means," but then he's going to provide evidence that supports his answer. And so in verse 15, uh, there's, there's a parallel with 15, 16, and then 17 and 18. If you look at it, um, there's, there's two answers happening here. So in verse 15, he says, for God says, and then he gives a, a verse. And then in verse 16, he says, so then. All right, so it's, it's a kind of a because and then therefore. Then we go to verse 17, for the scripture says, and then verse 18, so then. All right, so we have two parallel answers here. First one is because, God says, therefore. And then verse 17, because, Scripture says, therefore. All right, so he's drawing out Old Testament Scriptures to prove his point and then explaining what that tells us about God. Why is such a blunt rejection in verse 14, the, the by no means, why is that justified? This is a good example of why we need to have a good explanation for the things we believe. All right, Paul just doesn't give the answer all right, and say, this is the answer, accept it. You don't need any reasons. Right? He goes and he builds his case from the Old Testament. Um, we always need to be ready and able to do that when people have questions. You know, how do we build a good answer from the scriptures? So first scripture is when God is talking to Moses 
And this is in Exodus 33. And this is when Moses asks God to show him his glory. Right? And God hides him. And God passes by. And God proclaims his name. Um, when God speaks, we are learning something about the character of God. God is revealing himself. And this is a very special moment. And what God reveals about himself here is amazing. Because God says, as he is speaking his name, as he is revealing himself to Moses, he says, this is one of my defining characteristics. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a defining foundational characteristic of who our God is. His freedom to bestow mercy as he chooses. That is part of, as it were, God's name. His his self-revealed description. This is describing the very nature of the way God characteristically acts. His sovereign freedom. So when we look at the question of whether or not God is just... What is the standard of God's justice? Himself. Himself. Right? So it's, it's, this totally eliminates the human fairness question. Right? We do not come to God and say, this is my idea of justice. I'd like you to read it. And then we'll evaluate whether or not you have lived up to the standard. Right? The standard of justice or injustice is God himself. So when God reveals himself as a God who shows mercy as he desires and shows compassion as he desires, then we have answered the question of whether or not he was just with Jacob and Esau, with Isaac and Ishmael. Right? God showed mercy as he wanted to. Right? He had mercy on whom he wanted to have mercy. He had compassion on whom he wanted to have compassion. He did that exactly with Jacob and Esau. And that is who he is. So therefore, he is just. He has remained true to his character. This isn't a conversation with people who are, you know, trying to compare him to other gods yeah. or whatnot. And yeah. so in light of that, when the people would respond to him and say, is this the one true God unjust by mm-hmm. your standards then? Um, <clears throat> he shows them how even from the Old Testament, this way of God acting mm-hmm. is not even a matter of interpretation, but a Yeah. And so Paul draws his conclusion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Right? That human will, that inner desire, um, our readiness to do something, our willingness. You combine that together with exertion, which is our efforts, the execution of a desire. Um, really summing up the totality of man's capacity right here. Right? So, so it does not depend on human will or exertion but instead on God who has mercy, which is consistent with his character. Well-quoted scripture has the tendency to do that. That's awesome. I guess sometimes I feel like in this, like, where, you know, Todd was talking about, like, what right do we have to exert our, our, our free will or to mm-hmm. question any of this, you know? Um, or to even, like, ask the question, why, mm-hmm. you know? Um, sometimes you're made to feel, like, foolish or or 
that you're not fully understanding what's happening when you question the whys of things. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily a doubt, but <clears throat> when you really stop and you say that, okay, God's standard for justice is himself, right? Mm -hmm. Which, in a sense, is the perfect standard, and in another sense, is no standard at all. Because it's like, he's if it's individual, right? Mm -hmm. If he's looking at, he's going to have compassion and mercy on who he chooses, yeah. right? It's like a person picking up a little, you know, a, a baby chick and nuzzling it and then setting it down and then like picking up another one and nuzzling it and setting it down, picking up another one and snapping its leg and mm -hmm. setting it down. It's like, there's, there's really this huge swing of mm -hmm. liberty and freedom and the tangible result of it is we see the things that we would call injustices where you know there's kids that are beaten and raped to death every day but yeah. Keith Richards is still alive right so you know <laughs> it's like so, so but yet we're not allowed to to say man that sucks right. why is it like that man and I get that it's a block for some people myself included but yeah. sometimes as somebody that does sit with those questions yeah. um Sometimes I'm made to feel like, and not by anybody here, I'm not like mm -hmm. grinding an axe. I'm just yeah. saying, um, felt like it's not valid. Yeah. You know? The, the, the why is a very valid question to ask. It comes down to our heart in asking it. Um, Paul is answering the why. He's telling us the reasons. And, and if we are coming before God with humility saying, I want to understand more about you. You know, and, and how you act and why you act. That is good and pursue that as far as you can. Right? If we come before God with, the, I can't believe you did this, why? Right? We are pursuing it in a very sinful way. Right? And there's a huge difference between those two. I, I think a lot of the lamentations of the Psalms are a great example mm -hmm. of this. Yeah. Where the Psalms aren't questioning, like, are you actually God? rather in light of the fact that he is God, he's declared himself to be just yep. and then they look at the world and they just have an honest confusion about it and yep. they just wrestle with that why in light of who God is yep. and I think that's yep. a pattern that gives us the freedom to be open and honest about our wrestling with yep. these things yeah, because Paul's giving us answers he's explaining it And, and again, Paul's explaining it to us. Um, it, it's not going to be fully understood, but we want to wrestle in in faith. We want to wrestle while trusting God, right? We don't want to wrestle so that we distrust God. Um, and so that that's a a great question and a good thing to remember. Um, and then we go to the the example of Pharaoh. Do you wanna... I'm just going to say that you know Job asked the why. There mm -hmm. was sin to ask why. Yeah. And so often in many of those examples, the answer comes as we are humbled more and more before God. Um, and, and we have to always remember that. Like the, the thing that causes us to want to accuse God comes from a place of pride. And so as we break down and see God more correctly and see ourselves more correctly, we're going to get, uh, we're going to understand better. Right? Our answer, we're going to be more accepting of the good answers. Personally, one of the silver linings in questioning the whys and things is is seeing that, that 
God is and he holds true even in this mm -hmm. you know his his strong tower is is not necessarily like un, un, unmovable he, he does whatever you know it's yeah. it's uh, I, I lost exactly what I was going to try to say but I, I guess for me it's it, it's shown me and given me a better appreciation that yeah there's a, a level of decision making in what's happening in our world and universe that is far beyond mm -hmm. it's like our inability to hear frequencies or see certain yeah. colors we just yeah. aren't equipped for it right yeah. Yeah. and so for me the good part is it's helped me to be more eternally minded yeah. that look man this <clears throat> thing is going to swing every day is going to swing and a phone call can come that changes everything mm -hmm. right at any moment so to be equipped for that yeah. is is to be more heavenly minded and not mm -hmm. storing up treasures on earth and really yeah. looking towards that thing that is level when we have that capacity we're not seeing in a mirror dimly anymore but yet we're seeing god fully and so i don't want to sit here like the crumb bum who's questioning everything because in mm -hmm. questioning it i have been drawn closer to yeah. to to what's true mm -hmm. and, and so it's um yeah. and that's arrived from those those why questions and yeah. seeing a lot of hurt and seeing a lot of pain you know here haiti wherever you yeah. know yeah. Um, but it, it's arrived and, it, and it's been a good thing because i have a son who thinks a lot of the way they, I, that I do, and so getting to, to yeah. navigate that down and, mm -hmm. and sort of like unpack that with him, Amen. that's been a blessing. Amen. Let's switch to Pharaoh because there's, there's the flip side of of this example that Paul gives. Um, first, he has proven God's mercy and compassion are freely given, and then he he goes to uh, the the negative side of of God's election. Verse 17: For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, "For this very purpose I have raised you up." For I have appointed you to, to this role in the history of salvation so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, the conclusion in verse 18, Paul's kind of bringing these two things together. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And in, in Pharaoh, we see the hardening example. Right? So, so this is God... Uh, bringing Pharaoh to the place of being unreceptive to, to God and to his word, right? Unreceptive to obeying God, insensitive to God. Um, and you see this in, in the Old Testament. You know, Pharaoh gets chance after chance after chance to see God's miracles and respond. And sometimes you see it said that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Other times you see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Um, and so Paul says here that God is free to also do this. And this is, this is the one that really you know, gets the hair up on, on some people's necks. Um, but let's remember that God is not doing something here against the will of Pharaoh. And that, that's really helpful. Um, you know, Pharaoh is not striving after God and God hardens him. Right? Pharaoh is diametrically opposed to God and to his people and God acts in a hardening way towards that um, maintaining Pharaoh in, in the state of sin that he is already in and that he already desires that he already enjoys um, and so that helps us understand this a little bit more it, also the thing that, that God declares here in verse 17 is that he does it he does this act of hardening to show his power so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is the greatest thing that God is doing on this earth. Right? This is God glorifying himself. It's what we long for God to do. It's what we want God to do with us. It's what we want God to do in this world to bring glory to his name. And this is one of the ways he does it. Right? By, by withdrawing grace from Pharaoh... And allowing Pharaoh to be hardened so that the name of God might be proclaimed more loudly, more strongly. Right? And that is a good end. That is a God-glorifying goal. And that is exactly what God ought to do. This is exactly what was happening in Paul's day as he wrote this. Right? There was a partial hardening that had come upon Israel so that the name of God could be glorified among the Gentiles. Right? 
God with, withdrew his electing saving grace from Israel, as it were, so that a greater salvation could be brought to the entire world. Right? This is an amazing, glorious truth. Um, and again, remembering that, that God is not hardening people that love him. Right? He's hardening people that hate him. And in some ways, this is a judgment upon their sin. Right? It, it's the Romans 1 example of God letting them go the way they want to go. Right? Because anything in us that is not hard is of the grace of God. Right? The image of God still in sinners is gracious. Right? The conscience still in sinners is gracious. And as God starts to withdraw that, right, they become harder and harder. And so we have the, the conclusion here that Paul gives. Just as God bestows mercy of his own initiative, apart from anything in a person, so he does with his hardening. And it is all for the supreme good purpose of his glory. God is going to act for his glory, as he should. And we want to rejoice in that um, even if it's hard for us to sometimes understand how he does it. Again, God is sovereign. We are responsible. We're emphasizing in this passage his sovereignty. Right? We're not negating the responsibility of mankind. Um, but that's just not what's emphasized in this argument here. Uh, we need to also remember that. So what do we do with this passage? Um, many people recoil at it. As, as we said earlier, this is one of the most effective ways for us to be humbled rightly before God. And that is a good, good place to be. To be humbled before God is a good place to be. I think in evangelism, I think one of our roles should be to teach a lost humanity who are walking in the futility of the mind to understand truly who they are as persons. Mm-hmm. But he's laid out that framework of yep. this is man, this is God, 